Earth has no sorrow, but heaven can't heal. Earth has no sickness, heaven can't cure. You can just keep going. Earth has nothing, has nothing that God can't take care of and fix and heal. Um, And I, I think it's a beautiful thing that this morning we're talking about relationships. And we all come to church and we all come to services and we all do go about our daily lives and we all pretend that our lives are perfect and everything is great and everything's grand and we're getting along well with our spouse and, and we pretend, we pretend, we pretend. But there is sickness in our relationships. There is pain in our relationships. There is hurt in our relationships. And we glaze over it and gloss over it and pretend that it's not there. I want us to be real this morning. I don't want you to coexist with your spouse. I don't want you to coexist in relationships with each other. I want them to be blessed. I want them to be the type of relationships that God can be honored through. Don't just allow yourself to fall into the world's perspective on what relationships are supposed to be or should be or could be or whatever. God has a picture. God has a plan. And if we will follow it, our relationships will be blessed. And they will feel blessed. They will feel good. They will feel like God wanted them to feel. All the way through scripture. In fact, starting on page two, right? We see God honoring the relationship between husband and wife. It's there. We're at the tail end of a very long and consequential series entitled The Not So Inconsequential. We started with Hosea and um, we went through all of the minor prophets. So beginning with Hosea, I want us to say the books of the minor prophets. Can you do it with me? Yeah. We should be getting good at this. We've done it a lot. So start with me. Hosea. Joel. Sounds pretty good. I didn't even help you that much this time. Sounds excellent. We are going to focus today because... God asked Malachi to, we're going to focus on loving the one you are with. God puts different people in our lives, and obviously our spouse, one in particular. If you you knew for a fact that you were not going to see a particular person, someone that meant a lot to you, if you knew that you were not going to see them for a long time, and you knew that you had just a few minutes to spend with them before they left, I hate goodbyes, right? I'm one of those guys like, see you. And I just go. But if you knew you were going to have just a few minutes to share something with that person, what would you say? What would you talk about? What would be of utmost importance if you were going to leave tomorrow and go on a very long trip for a very long time? What would you share with those you love? Would you talk about the weather? Would you talk about the news of the day? Would you talk about how 
Broncos beat Green Bay Packers yesterday? Would you talk about the eclipse that happened this week? I don't think we would. 400 years will go by from the end of this book till we hear anything from God. These are the famous last words that God wants to share with his people before he goes away for a very long time. Upmost importance, and he spends a great deal of time on relationship between husband and wife. It's important. It's shared with us as famous last words. God put a lot of thought, and he shared in these short chapters, and a majority of it, a big chunk of it, is about relationship. We covered some stuff last week about not robbing God, not robbing others, not robbing yourself, not robbing your marriage. This week, next week, not robbing your kids. In four, four short chapters, and he focuses on marriage. I'm going to go back to the basics of marriage, back to the, to the basics of what marriage is all about. If you think your marriage is the best it's ever been and, and you've been married a half a century, great. This, this message is going to be for you. If you got married yesterday, this information will help your relationship. If you're thinking about getting married someday, this is going to help your, you learn what a relationship should look like. If you're just getting out of a really bad marriage, take notes. Because the information that we're going to share today can benefit your relationship. God's word is packed full of great advice for marriages. I always say you're either moving, moving towards and working on your marriage and towards intimacy. Or you're moving away and working your marriage down into isolation. Where the two people are separated rather than together. We need to come back to the basics of relationship called marriage. I realize that some of you are here and you're thinking, it's like, man, I can't believe I came to church today. It's a total waste of time. You're single. Maybe you're wishing you were married. Maybe you're single and tend to stay that way. Either way, I hope you write this stuff down because somewhere in your life, you're into a time and a place where you can use it. I want us to start in Malachi chapter 2. Open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2. And um, we're going to start in verse 10 there where he starts really kind of diving into this relationship, marriage relationship. Let's look to God in word of prayer um, before we dive in there. God, we thank you so much for uh, being our God and for sharing these extremely important last words with us. God, I pray that we will take them as that, that we will tune in and, and listen to the words that you're sharing with us and make it real for us, real in our lives. God, help our relationships this week to start becoming better and start becoming what you want them to be rather than what they have been, rather than what the world wants them to be, rather than what Satan wants them to be. God, help us to tune in now. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 10 says, Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another. Aren't we all one just big one big family under God's roof? Why are we being unfaithful to each other? Look at verse 11. 
Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary of the Lord. The sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Judah had desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves. My mind immediately goes, when I hear the word sanctuary, my mind immediately goes to a big giant church. A big church with a big steeple and a a big beams that hold the sanctuary together. And you walk in and there's pews and there's a a stage and there's a big cross on on the stage. That's where my mind goes. But he's actually talking about marriage here. The sanctity of marriage. Marriage between one man and one woman. From the second page in the Bible, like I mentioned earlier, there has been an emphasis on marriage and its holiness. David Guzik writes a, a, a commentary and he points out why God loves marriage. Four things. These aren't, this isn't in your notes, so if you want to try to write these down, I'll try to say them twice so you can get them down. God loves marriage for what it displays about his relationship with us. God loves marriage for what it displays about his relationship with us. In the New Testament, he uses the symbol of marriage to describe his relationship with us, his church, the bride of Christ. When we break the covenant of marriage, it breaks his heart. God loves marriage for what it displays about his relationship with us. Number two, God loves marriage for the good it does in society. Why is this message important? Why is God's famous last words important to us? Because God loves marriage for the good it does in society. If your marriage is strong, your family is strong. If your family is strong, your neighborhood will be strong. If your neighborhood is strong, then your city will be strong. If your city is strong, then your nation is strong. God wanted a strong nation. Strong marriages make for strong nations. Marriage is what makes strong people. God says, I want a home to be a place where you run to when you're broken down, not run away from. I want marriage to be a place where you can run to and relax. We did those uh, marriage uh, metaphors this morning in our discussion class. And someone said, marriage is like a chair. You can go there to rest. You can go there and sit down and rest. You ever feel that about your favorite chair? You get there and oh yeah, this is nice. Been looking forward to this all day. That's what marriage should be like. This is a relationship which builds security. It establishes a a trust. Home is a place where self-worth is built and maintained. Number three, God's love for marriage. Uh, he, He loves marriage because it's It's the way the needs of men, women, and children are met. God loves marriage for the way it meets the needs of men, women, and children. This is what will satisfy you. This is what will build you up when you are broken. The place to gain strength when you are weak. This is the place from from conception to adulthood that will provide, protect, and prepare an individual. Marriage is a place where God gets his godly offspring. There it went. God loves marriage for the way it meets the needs of men, women, and children. And number four, God loves marriage as a tool for conforming us into the image of 
of his son. God loves marriage because it's a tool that helps conform us into the image of his son. It's a tool to chip away the garbage from our lives as individuals. Marriage is going to be a place where we are refined, where we get to help each other be more like God. This is where she tells me you need to stop acting like a two-year-old because I don't want my two-year-old to act like that. God has used this beautiful girl to work out some rough edges on this guy. I probably wouldn't have listened if she wasn't so pretty. You're probably saying, uh, Lloyd, she's, probably, she's got a lot of work left to do. And, you, and you're right. But God loves marriage because it's a tool that helps us conform, helps us become what God wants us to be. Look at verse 13 there in chapter 2. Look at verse 13. We're going to read down through verse 15. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? Is it because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and your wife of, uh, and the wife of your youth? Because you have broken faith with her? Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant? Has not the Lord made them one in flesh and spirit? They are his And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with your wife, the wife of your youth. God says, you treat your spouse like garbage all week and then come on Sunday and expect me to accept your worship. God's altar is flooded with tears from the hurt in the home. The inconsideracies of your selfish, of a selfish spouse that has caused so much pain. This passage tells us God is a witness to what's going on in the home. Guys, listen closely. You married his daughter. And let me tell you, this is one father-in-law that you want on your side. You don't want to mess with this one. Said you married my girl. And you think I care more about how you sing and pray and participate in the service on Sunday? No. God sees the tears you cause her. Ladies, you married his boy. Some more boys than others. God says, I care about how you treat my boy. I care about how you speak to him and how you talk to him. How you talk down to him and how I've seen how you how you disrespect him. We start thinking the other six and a half days of the week don't matter. We think as long as we're here on Sunday morning for this half day, that God will be content. Malachi is telling us God cares about these things. Look at verse 16. It says, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate the man's covering himself with violence as well as his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. I said this last week that God hates divorce. He doesn't hate divorced people. As a church, we do our best to hate the things God hates and love the things God loves. As a church, we hate divorce, but we don't hate divorced people. We hate what it does to children. We hate what it does to people. We hate what it does to society. But God says it matters what what happens when nobody's looking. The hurt, the pain, the tears matter to God, even if they are hidden. 
Malachi writes as God tells him, I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as his garment. Did you catch that? In the Jewish wedding ceremony, there was a place where the groom would take his outer garment and place it on his bride-to-be. It was this symbol. Everything that he was, his abilities, his, his protection was placed as a garment on his bride. She was covered by everything that he was. She was under his umbrella of protection. God said, you've covered yourself with violence. He says, I see the violence in words and anger and vengeance and selfishness. God hates it. He's a witness. And for 400 years, this is what he wants to stand in your mind, in, in, in your head. He wants you to hear this so that this can make an impact. Marriage is not easy. It's not easy and it's not fair. Fill in your blanks. Marriage is not easy and it's not fair. Nowhere in scripture do we find verses that tell us that marriage is going to be easy and fair. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7.28, it says that every marriage is going to have trouble. Every marriage is going to have trouble. That's one to put on your coffee cup. Yeah. <laughs> Plaster it on the back side, not on the front side. You hold your right hand, put it on the back side of the cup so she can read it across the table. See that right there? You're trouble. You're trouble. No, I don't, I don't recommend it. Don't recommend that. I'm going to challenge you in ways today. You might not respond with, well, uh, you might respond with, well, I'll do it if, uh, if they do. And um, I've really kind of already done my part, so I don't know. I married this extremely sinful girl, and she married this extremely sinful guy, guy, both of us prone to our own selfishness. And when we come together, we make a huge problem. Huge. Both of us are prone to our own selfishness. By sinful nature, we think that we're to meet them halfway. We're to go 50-50, right? doesn't work that way. God brings two selfish people together in marriage to oneness. He calls it oneness, but he knows there's going to be trouble. Two troubles into one trouble is what? This is one big, huge trouble. If you wanted it easy and fair, you should have joined a chess club. There's rules. It's fair. You can't cheat. Every piece moves in its own special way. There's, there's parameters. You get your turn and then the timer is set and the other person gets the same amount of time to, to make their move. It's fair. Marriage is not a chess club. Yeah, some of you are saying, I've been waiting nine years for my turn. Yeah, I know. We get this messed up idea that, that marriage is 50-50. Slow down here and hear this. If you think marriage is 50-50 and you're not married yet, don't get married. Chase me on this one. So if I go into marriage and I say, I'm going to give 50% and what I'm actually capable of is probably more like, oh, I don't know, 30, 35 at the best, maybe 40. Let's just say, let's just say I'm able to do 35%. Carol comes in and she's going to bring her, her 50%, but being a little better than I am, she can bring 40% in. So we end up with what? We end up with 75%. Where's the other 25% going to come from? It's not coming from the world. Nobody's pitching anything into your relationship. 
Has anybody come to you and said, you know what, I just want to help out. I just want to help out your relationship today. What can I do to help your relationship? I'm going to, I'm going to take the kids today and so that you guys can spend more time together. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but it doesn't happen often. We need to go in planning on giving 100%. I might end up giving 60. She might end up giving, she's a lot better, probably 80%. So now what do we have? We have 140%. Well, well, math guys, this just doesn't add up. What do you do with all that extra? That extra is what you can overflow and share with others. No, you're not sharing your marriage with others. You're sharing that love, that capacity. Once, once the two of you have given and once the two of you have created what marriage is supposed to be, it overflows on others. It gives out of that abundance. It gives to others. Too many of our marriages are aiming for below average. In order to create loving relationships, we have to find what love is. We tried to do this this morning, right? We looked at 1 Corinthians 13. Well, that's just Bible love. Yeah, was, I, don't know. I, don't know if that, I don't know if we can do that. You know, we can find some old couple that have been married 65 years, and we're going to say, well, that's just, that's just old love. That's not, that's not good. Right? We want cool. We want exciting love. So we took a poll. This morning, right? We wrote down as many words as we come up with that define love. What did we come up with? Did anybody have any, any words that you came up with? Did anybody keep your papers? What kind of words did you come up with to describe love between a husband and wife? Loyal. Loyal forgiving. Long-suffering. long-suffering respect. respect. Anybody else? Patient. Passion. Okay. Forgiving. forgiving. What other words did you come up with? Selfless. Selfless. All right. Respect, you know, honor, trust, reliability. It takes communication, sacrifice, honesty, accountability, patience, commitment, selflessness, humility, kindness. All of these kind of words. Lots of choices, but not a whole lot of emotions, right? Yet when we see marriages breaking up, what do we hear? Why well, I just don't have feelings for them anymore. They just aren't making me happy anymore. I'm just not feeling it. I really just think God wants me to be happy and I just can't be happy with, with them. It's funny because it's never, it was never supposed to be about feelings to begin with. We don't hear things like, well, I'm just not reliable anymore. I just don't have, I just simply have run out of sacrifice and I'm just, I'm no longer committed and I've just found it real difficult to be honest with them anymore. You see the difference? Feelings are subjective. So many couples somewhere along the line have just fallen out of love. Well, that's not really possible because you can't fall into love because love is a choice. It's not an emotion. You can fall into passion. You can fall into fun. You can fall into excitement. You can fall into intimacy. But love is a choice. So we force ourselves to go to 1 Corinthians 13 because God gave us choices, not emotions. This is why God tells us not to have premarital sex. Because it's fun and it's passionate. God created it that way as a wedding gift. But if you play around with it before marriage, couples base their relationship on it. When the sex and the passion wears off, couples find that there's, there's no commitment to marriage. Which is difficult and unfair. If you look at 1 Corinthians 13, what does God start with? You know, if I was going to write it, if I was, gonna, if I was God and I was going to write what love is... 
I would not start where he started. I would be like, love is breathtaking and heart-pounding and overwhelming. And, and love is amazing and it's erotic and it's mind-blowing. No. God starts with love is patient. Why do you suppose he started with patience? God says, Lord, I started with patience because I thought someday someone might want to marry you. And whoever that poor soul was, she was going to need lots of patience. Marriage is not easy and it's not fair. You wouldn't need patience if it was you wouldn't need patience if it was easy and fair. But it's gonna be worth it. But you are gonna need patience. Look at the list and ask yourself, am I harsh? It says love is patient and love is kind. It's not harsh. Are you harsh with your loved ones? Do I always have to win? Do I always have to be right? By the way, this is a no elbow service. You cannot elbow the person sitting next to you if you're sitting next to your spouse. Just let God talk to them. Love isn't proud. It does not boast. Ask yourself the question, am I, am I self-centered? Do I have, have to have it my way? Is it all about me? As God says, love is not rude. It is not self-seeking. Ask yourself the question, do I have a short fuse? Because love is not easily angered. It doesn't keep record of wrongs. Am I cynical? Do I often bring up the past? Love is a choice, not an emotions. This is good news for what I'm about to break down because love is a choice. We can go back to loving again. Emotion can come later. You know, television shows have taught us this, that the emotions, they, they bring out one bachelor and they bring out 30 eligible women, Right? And they put them in a mansion that no one could ever afford. They, there's no work. There's no stress. They're just out there hanging out. There's always a pool. There's always a hot tub. Um, there's always extremely romantic settings, right? You're helicoptered to your dates. Who does that? At the end of six or eight weeks, someone is going to fall in love, usually with four people. And now you have a choice to make. It totally blows me away, the genius of television, out of the billions of people that, that they're, they, they're in their great wisdom and, and their phenomenal uh, ability, they are able to find the soulmate for one individual, right? Why? Because emotion can be manufactured. Emotion can be manufactured, and this proves it. Why? Given the right amount of LED lights, given the right table setting, the right view, enough time, you can manufacture emotions. You can. Anyone would have trouble choosing. I just don't know who to choose. Well, it's because the emotions have been created. Emotions come and go. Bad news is you can't fall in love. You can fall into fun, you can fall into intimacy, but not love. But the good news is you can't fall out of love. That's the good news. If you have chosen to stop loving, you can start again because it's a choice. Now let's do this. Mastering the marriage cycle. There's five blanks on your sheet. One leads to the other. And we're just going to roll through these uh, to, to, to end this morning. Uh, number one is, is joy. It's where relationships start. Joy. Right? Get to my computer-aided typography class the first day back from summer break. 
She walks in, just having her legs extended. She didn't have short shorts on. Her legs were just really, really, really long. She sits down next to me, and the instructor tells her, tells us to turn the computers on. So to boost my ego and to make me feel extremely important and to have an excuse to talk to me, she pretends to not know how to turn on her computer. And of course I'm willing to help. My mother taught me well. I look for her in the halls every single day, try to find her on the other days of class, but I have to wait until the following week. A friend of mine and a friend of hers decide we should all go to lunch together. Eh, I guess. It's okay. Rather than pulling a $10 bill out of my wallet to pay for our Taco Bell, which probably would have paid for everyone's Taco Bell, <laughs> I grabbed a Benjamin. She was hooked. <laughs> now she thinks I'm rich. It's all joy at this point, right? It's all joy. It's super fun. And it's exciting. And it's heart-stopping. We get to know each other. My mom doesn't even scare her off. It's unbelievable. She tried several times. <laughs> I stand there in a rented tux and she in a dress that was on sale for twice as much as I paid for the engagement ring. Give me a break. I didn't know the rules. We say I do's and everyone claps and is in shock that she actually said yes. And there's joy, right? There's the honeymoon. There's those, those joyous moments somewhere in the midst of the two flawed and sinful people coming together to make a life together, we find the next one down. Disillusionment. It's a long word. D-I-S-I-L-L-U-S-I-O-N-M-E-N-T. Disillusionment. To disenthrall. To undeceive. <laughs> I like that one. To disappoint. Somewhere you realize that this is not what I signed up for. Her breath and her hair do not automatically do themselves. She realizes that our, there are smells and there are noises that we're not a part of dating. We begin to bring our lives together to create oneness. And it really just creates one big problem after another in almost every single area of life. Our thoughts about money, our thoughts about children, our thoughts about how to discipline a dog. Disillusionment has signs. It's when you realize this isn't what I thought it was going to be. I had hoped marriage would be different. I guess this is what he's like. I thought she would be different. All signs of disillusionment. Reality sets in and disillusionment moves on to number three, misery. Misery. It's just straight up misery. We get to this place where we decide, I guess this is what life is going to be like. I guess this is who he is. No more poetry, no more flowers, right? I used to give flowers on every possible occasion. Once you get the prize, you stop putting quarters in the machine. Where misery builds to a place where you take more time at work. You get different jobs so you don't have to spend so much time together. She dreads to hear the sound of your car pulling in the driveway. It's where sleeping in separate bedrooms makes sense because it's pointless to have to be awakened every time he turns over. It's where reconnecting with old friends from high school makes sense. So there hasn't been much conversation lately. This is when the, the word hated by God comes to mind. We think God wanted me to be happy. It's more important for, 
for, for me to be happy than obeying him. There seems to be no hope. If this is what marriage is going to be like, then I must have married the wrong one. When someone breaks the shallow script and says something like, No, really. How are you doing today? Sometimes leads to a three-day conversation, which leads to the next step, number four, understanding. Below understanding, I want you to write tough communication. Because this is where things start to turn around. It's where conversation begins. This is the tough conversations. This is where the expectations that have been left unstated and in the silence begin to unfold. Expectations unspoken will most often go unmet. This is when she will share her needs, her long list of romantic needs and emotional needs. This is where she'll try to get him to understand how it feels to be in the spot she's in. The list of expectations will come out. This is when he also will share the one thing in his life that he's, that's not being met. You see the difference. This is where real tough communication comes in. We have to tell each other how to love us. It's like taking a love language quiz online. Have you ever done that? It actually helps. You can find out what the love language of your spouse is. Don't assume your spouse knows how, you, how, how to love you. Well, it's their job to love me, but but no, you need to share with them how they are to love you. It seems weird to ask your spouse to love you in the way you want because, well, they they should just figure it out. No, they're not going to. You have to tell them. For guys, you might have to might have to tell them more than once because we're kind of dense. And don't hint around about it. Be direct. Guys, don't take hints very well. Ladies, be direct. Tell him exactly what you want. Well, it's not going to mean as much if I tell him what I want and then he goes and does it. Trust me, that's the only way he's going to figure it out. We will not figure it out if you don't tell us direct. Some of us will, but most of us won't. Carol finally told me when she's crying... And I've gone through the normal questions like, well, is it something I did? Well, is it something you did? Was it something the kids did? And she's just sobbing and shaking her head no. She just wants me to come over and hold her and tell her everything is going to be all right. It's going to be all right. For us guys, it feels very wrong. Because for one, we don't know what it is. We don't know what everything is, and when we say those words, it almost feels like a lie. It's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. Because we have no idea what it is. But that's what they want. It's not logical. They're not asking you to lie. But they are asking you to show them the love they need. Love is a choice. But you can't make choices if you don't know what the needs are. So in understanding the needs, in sharing the expectations, we get the knowledge we need to be able to make that choice to love them. Do you see where we're going? This is the understanding. This is the tough communication part of a relationship, which leads to number five, mature love. This is the place where you want to land. 
Now we know what each other's needs are, physically, emotionally, sexually, spiritually, relationally. Trying to guess what the other needs is ridiculous. Whose fault is it if, you're, if your needs don't get met? Well, it's yours. You can't expect them to read your mind. This is what it means to be assertive. In a healthy relationship, both husband and wife are quite assertive. Once he, we know what the other one needs, we can show submission. That's another definition on your sheet. Write it down. Submission is putting the needs and interests of someone else above your own. Submission is putting the needs and interests of someone else above your own. It's impossible to put the needs and interests of someone else above your own if you don't know what they need. Don't be boneheaded and expect them to automatically know how, you lo- how, how to love them and how to meet their needs. Share those expectations. I think a lot of marriages have gotten to a place where, where one figures the other is never going to figure out what they need, so they just have completely given up. Don't live life like that. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how long you've been married. God never intended life, a, a marriage relationship, to be coexistent. We eat, we sleep, we live in the same address, we have the same last name. But that's the extent of our oneness. Intimacy isn't there. Everything God wants to get accomplished through marriage is short-circuited when we stop sharing our expectations. At the point in which expectations are shared, then it becomes a choice. Love is a choice. But it can't be a choice if we don't share our expectations. This marriage cycle happens multiple times throughout our lives. Throughout a marriage relationship, throughout any relationship, this cycle happens multiple times. Kids came along. My wife became a mom. I was left to try to figure out how to become a dad. Once again, disillusionment became a real factor again, right? Maybe the kids have grown up and they've moved out. The idols are gone. Now they are stuck staring at this person that I haven't really known for the last 15 years. And now disillusionment once again sets in. It's full-time misery at this point because we don't know each other. Stop, come together, discuss what what each other needs, then make choices again to love the other. Because love is a choice. It needs to be an active choice. So two things to go. If I'm not working on my marriage, I'm working against it. If I'm not working on my marriage, I'm working against it. Well, you say, well, I'm not even married. You're working on your relationship. You're working on your marriage, even though you're not married. You're doing things in your life, single people, young people. You're doing things in your life that are going to impact your relationship with your spouse someday. It's important. Working on my marriage is you're either working on it or you're not. It's a daily strategic thing that we do. It's not something that we just... uh, nonchalantly go we it's a day in and day out operation because we live in a day and age where everything around us is designed to destroy marriages did you know that everything around us is designed to destroy your relationship with your spouse god loves race relationships god loves strong marriages and satan hates them movies tv shows billboards they are all aiming to destroy healthy marriages if you aren't fighting for your marriage relationship daily it will be lost. If you buy a plant and choose not to water it, what happens to it? You've chosen to kill it. If you buy a puppy and you choose not to feed it, what are you choosing? 
you're choosing to kill it. If you enter into a relationship and you choose not to nurture it daily, you've chosen to kill it. One last thing. Marriage has to be a pursuit of holiness, not happiness. We have to get this thought that God wants us to be happy out of our heads. God wants us to be holy, not happy. In the midst of choosing daily to live in obedience to him in our marriages, he will give us everything we need in this life. Don't focus on happiness in your marriage. Focus on holiness. Allowing God to make you into the person he wants you to be through your marriage relationship. Everything I've said today, everything we've talked about out of this book of Malachi can be applied to any and all relationships. However, it's extremely important that those of us who are married put this into practice. God said these words, he wrote them on paper, and now he lives for the next, or he goes for the next 400 years without saying a word. These things are important for us to understand. Let's look to God. A word of prayer to close, and um, we'll sing our, sing our awesome. Are we going to sing that same good song again? Oh, good deal, good deal. Let's look to God in prayer. God, thank you so much for uh, being our God. For writing-